2: You can't build a
0: peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery.
2: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application communication.
3: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton and today we're going to talk about forest biology and some of the ways in which biotechnology may be used to meet current challenges. And to discuss this with us, we're discussing with Dr. Steve Strauss. Uh, He's the Distinguished Professor of Forest Biotechnology at Oregon State University. Welcome back to the podcast, Steve.
1: Thank you very much, Kevin. Yeah, this
3: is really um, uh, an important episode because at the end, we have an action item for the listeners. So uh, if you're listening, hang in there and uh, follow through the whole thing because there's some important steps we need you to take. But to start out talking about what we're um, going to discuss today, what is the major problem in our forests and the challenges that they're up against?
1: Yeah, Kevin, there's no disagreement that forests are under increasing stress all over the world. This has been happening for many years. The two biggest agents are introduced pests and pathogens that move around the world on uh, wood products that are moved as people... Uh, 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 are, are doing tourism. And on top of that, now we have uh, climate change, which is really here with us and causes you know great stress to forests and often exacerbates these pest epidemics. On top of that, we would like to go more and more carbon neutral as much as possible, use re- renewable products, renewable energy, and forests are major sources of that. So we'd like to make the sequestration of carbon, production of wood products, paper products, biofuels as efficient as possible. And we know that uh, different types of genetics, conventional breeding, the biotechnologies that are already used, and now these new biotechnologies uh, can have a big impact.
3: And, and a lot of the discussion about climate and about um forests being threatened by new pests and pathogens, these aren't just like pie-in-the-sky ideas of things that might happen. I mean, these are measurable changes that are happening inside forests, especially in the Pacific Northwest and up in the British Columbia, where they've actually been able to measure how trees that have been there for forever just can't survive anymore. And how is this really impacting those regions and the ecology?
1: Well, the impacts are huge out here in the West. On top of that, we have fires that often come in, in our stressed uh, pest-damaged forests and really make it a a trifecta of tremendous impact that, of course, affects everybody's health. Uh, Out here in the West, we have lots of pollution from forest fires, and then we have the the industries that depend on them and the livelihoods that depend on them, whether they be tourism or wood products, tremendously impacted. Although, actually, uh, Kevin, on the East Coast is actually... A longer record of introduced pests having a large impact. And two that uh, many in the public know about is the chestnut blight, which is essentially extirpated chestnut as a forest tree throughout its natural range in the Appalachians. And breeders have been trying to use conventional tools to deal with it for about about 100 years with very limited success. Now we have the emerald ash borer threatening pretty much all ashes in the United States. And uh, we don't really have tools to deal with that very well. So these pest threats are big. They're they're big in the West. They've been big in the East for a long time. And uh, the new National Academy report just issued a few days ago goes through that in quite a bit of detail. So people can see there's hundreds of these, not just uh, one or two. It's a big deal.
3: Oh, sure. Yeah. Down in the south, we have laurel wilt and we have um, uh, citrus greening, you know, which, although not forests, um, well, certainly the uh, uh, laurel wilt is affecting natural ecology around, uh, around swamps and different trees that are there. But it is really radically spreading and reshaping our forests and, and our natural areas.
1: Exactly right. yep it's a, it's a big deal. And a lot of people, you know, most of us are urban these days, don't get out a lot. And, and don't see it, aren't aware of it, can't tell what's natural mortality versus some introduced pest or a climate effect. So um, it's very hard for the urban public to really see what's going on.
3: So the skeptic might say or someone playing devil's advocate might say, well, why don't we just uh, replace the trees or why don't we just breed better trees? I mean, we, we just do it with animals. We do it with tomatoes. Why don't we just make better trees and stick them in the ground?
1: Yeah, and that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, this uh, we should be using all the tools that we have, all the options. And from a genetics point of view, from a making better tree for planting point of view, conventional breeding is the go-to. And that's what you use because we do it all the time, at least for our major species. For a lot of the wild species, we don't have breeding programs. We don't know how to breed them. That's more challenging But really, as I mentioned with the chestnut blight and emerald ash borer, we also have cases where conventional breeding either doesn't work at all or it's very, very inefficient. And in fact, forest trees, because they typically only flower every five, ten years, you breed them very, very slowly. So the ability to bypass breed, to bypass the limitations of breeding through biotech approaches is very appealing.
3: But what does the National Academy report say? I know this was something that recently came out. Can you give us a brief synopsis of what it tells us about uh, the need to have rapid and agile uh, ability to address the changes in forests?
1: Yeah, the National Academy report, uh, you know, covers a broad waterfront. The emphasis is on wild forest versus planted forests and what we can do about them. And they talk about the stresses, you know, being growing. Uh, having multiple stresses that are affecting trees, um, and that we need ecological as well as genetic approaches to deal with it. There's also other biotechnologies, including biocontrol organisms, uh, whether they're modified through biotech or whether they're just being brought in through conventional means. So they're talking about using the full suite of tools, uh, and I, I completely support that. They also talk about, you know, as we mentioned, how how big and growing the problem is, they talk about uh, the newer, what I'm calling, the, what they call biotech trees, the newer biotechnology. That's gene editing, when you specifically tweak a gene, and genetic engineering, when you might move a gene from one species to another. It could be from one ash to another ash. It could be from an entirely different species. And one of the problems with that is that even the research is extremely difficult to do because there's roadblocks in places. One is we have a regulatory system and they emphasize this, that really is made for soybeans. It's made for agricultural crops and really doesn't work when you consider trees and their uh, long lifespan and their ability to spread genes over large areas and the fact that they often inhabit wild areas where people are not used to thinking about genetic engineering. So our regulations are a bad fit and a tremendous roadblock even to research And then on top of that, there's certification. So green certification that uh, is is applied to most of our forests in North America, in fact. And most people don't realize that there's actually a provision in there uh, that doesn't allow even research with biotech trees in the field. So if you have a tree you think is going to be more stress or pest resistant and you want to check it out, you would get government approval and plant it and study it and make sure you contain it. Um, you still can't do it if you're a certified forest, as pretty much all of the commercial forests and national forests are. And so that to me is is sort of crazy. And the, the report doesn't dwell on that. But it talks about these, these roadblocks, the regulations and certification being things that we have to deal with up front, or we can't do the research, can't develop these solutions, can't see if they're best compared to other possible solutions uh, at all. And that seems to me, given the urgency that we have, uh, that's just kind of crazy.
3: And, and that was so surprising to me and to other people I've spoken with about this topic, is that there is a certification body. And and who is the certification body? And where do they fall in the hierarchy of federal agencies that uh, monitor this kind of technology?
1: Yeah, you know, this, this is a private, these are private bodies. It first started with a, a body called the Forest Stewardship Council which actually Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth had a lot to do with putting into place way back when. And the intentions were good when it was first created to control uh, illegal logging, particularly in the tropics, unsustainable practices. But they put in this provision very early on before anybody even knew what GMO uh, crops or trees were that just said, thou shalt not use them. And there's no exemption for research. And so only the biggest of the biggest corporations in the world can afford to do any field research because they'll, they, they can actually do it on other people's lands. They have that kind of resources. But most companies see this as a signal from the marketplace that you just can't go here and they don't even do research. They don't do any development. And so, uh, but where it came from was I think good intentions early on, but I think because some of the groups that were key early on, such as Greenpeace that, that, uh, you know, and I'm sure you've talked about many times in your podcast are completely anti-GMO when it comes to agricultural forestry. It doesn't matter the trade. It doesn't matter the need. It doesn't matter chestnut blight. And so they sort of slipped this in when nobody was really paying attention. And now it's really hard to remove because of all the controversy around GMOs generally, even beyond forestry, where, as you know, there's sort of a stigma. Most of the public thinks uh, GMOs are things to be concerned about rather than to think they have potential to solve problems.
3: And, you know, you're, at least in the last, you know, couple decades, your research program has done so many different things with transgenic trees to really demonstrate the potential utility of traits in solving problems, as well as understanding basic biology. And so how do these kind of rules really affect someone like you, someone who is at a university, who wants to do research, who wants to do this in the natural context? How does it really tie your hands?
1: It's huge. You know, I'm one of a a handful. A very few, maybe four or five programs uh, in the United States, and there's only a few more around the world that can even do research with uh, advanced biotechnologies and trees. Uh, first, it's hard to get money. The US government, for example, generally won't invest the grant programs in making a better tree through these advanced biotechniques. They'll invest in minimizing the risk of them. There's some research about that. But they've kind of said, you know, because of these roadblocks, we don't really see uh, how these can get out and, and help the public in you know, a reasonable time frame. So just getting money to do research is extremely difficult. And then when you can get funds to do research, uh, then you really want to. It's very important, you know, in agriculture and forestry, you can't develop a biotech in the lab or on the computer. That's where you have the ideas and you might test them the first time in, in a laboratory or greenhouse. To see if they really work and if they're better than alternatives, you have to get them in the field. And that's where this preclusion from certification is so important. We can't do that site-specific developmental field trials, or it's very, very difficult and expensive to do it, like I said, in other places, uh, to see if these things really work. And so in uh, in my career, I've done a lot of work with forestry companies where I would do the work in the lab and then work with them to get it in the field where they really know how to grow trees and they can compare it to what they're already doing. And now, because pretty much all of the ones are certified, they just say, sorry, Steve, I'd love to work with you. I I believe that biotech could be really powerful. This is what they tell me, but we just can't do it. If I plant a single tree of yours, uh, my entire forestry program would be decertified, and we can't risk that. Uh, We need the certification. It's not that it's necessarily better truly for the environment, but we need it to get access to markets because they demand we have this seal of approval. And one point, Kevin, is, you know, in forestry, because how dominant the certification systems are, it's not like the, the, the organic industry, whereas, you know, there's a lot of that in agriculture, but it's depending on the country and the way you look at it, a few percent. In forestry, it's almost the whole show. And so it has a huge chilling effect on the ability to do any of this. And so now we have to do it ourselves if we do it at all. And it's extremely difficult and expensive because of the regulations and all the paperwork that you have to go through. And if you make even a small mistake, it can be very expensive. There could be lawsuits. So and in many countries around the world, you just can't do it. It's too much of a political hot potato. And the certification thing is very much a part of that.
3: Well, I think you've outlined the problem very well. Here we have a problem that threatens forests, which are needed for so many different reasons, are necessary from everything from ecology to recreation to development of resources. And uh, a barrier in the way that's a regulatory barrier. And when we come back on the other side of the parade, we'll talk about how we can alleviate that barrier, and how you, the listener, can help in the process. We're speaking today with Dr. Steve Strauss, who's a Distinguished Professor of Forest Biotechnology at Oregon State University. We'll be back in
2: just a minute. Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. This is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you've never heard of No Ideas Media, we make science and agriculture communications videos to be shared on social media sites like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, The videos are not bad, if I do say so myself, and they are pretty effective at communicating complex science and ag topics to the general public. But in order for them to reach the public, I need people like you to share the videos widely. I also need people like you to support No Ideas Media through Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding site kind of like Kickstarter, but it works on smaller monthly donations. So if you'd like to help No Ideas Media continue the work that we're doing, please go to patreon.com backslash No Ideas Media and consider being a patron. Thanks very much.
3: And now we're back with the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Steve Strauss. He's the distinguished professor of forest biotechnology at Oregon State University. And we're speaking about some of the barriers that are in place that limit the ability of biotechnology solutions to penetrate the forest and solve problems that are threatening our forests. So we talked a lot about the problems and the regulations that are in place. How do you propose that we can begin to solve the problem?
1: You know, it's really difficult. I've written scientific papers. Uh, I went and did a sabbatical in Oxford in 2001 researching this and with a number of distinguished colleagues there, you know, wrote these papers saying that we need research. We need to remove these roadblocks. These make no sense. They can't be defended on any scientific criteria. In fact, when you read what the certifiers say, they say we don't have enough information, yet they do all they can to, uh, to, to obstruct getting the information we need so um, I, I've tried through scientific uh, means to kind of get the word out. And it really hasn't done a lot, I guess, with scientists talking to scientists primarily. So I thought maybe a petition that would have broader uh, appeal might get the public that's concerned about forests to weigh in there, might do something to motivate, maybe to shame a little bit. The certification organizations that have pretty much avoided talking about this, taking it seriously. The companies, of course, that are affected by it have tried through their own means to sort of get the certifiers to change their mind. And so far, they've gotten nowhere as well. So, uh, my thought is to, uh, get scientists and those interested in science and understand that before you have research, you have nothing and you obstruct research, you take away options. From society. And uh, and as we've been talking about, there's a lot of reasons to invest in the health and the productivity of forests as things get more and more scary. So anyway, that's the reason. And uh, and then a number of colleagues of mine, the best forest biotechnologists who are knowledgeable in this area around the world, um, the Alliance for Science based at Cornell, uh, the American Society of Plant Biologists, the biggest society of plant scientists in the world, based in the USA, but lots of lots of international members. They're all working with us to support this because they realize it just makes no scientific sense. It obstructs science. So we went ahead and we constructed a sort of background website where we talk about biotech trees and we give examples of all the different kinds that have been proven in research. And this includes both agriculture and, and forestry to show that there's a great diversity of traits and that there's tremendous amount of research already showing that they're not scary things. They are basically normal trees with these modified traits that have value. And, uh, and anyway, so you can go to that website and you can learn about them and learn about some of the science about them. You can go to the petition website, uh, and learn about, uh, what the petition really is and choose to sign on or circulate it in your different, in your different, uh, uh networks. But the point is, uh, Let's speak up. Let's use modern tools like social media to try to change this conversation, try to educate the public about this kind of dirty secret that you can't even do research in the field with uh, with biotech trees to evaluate it as an option.
3: And where does the listener find a copy of the petition?
1: Well, you know, if you go online, uh, you can find either the background website or the petition website. But the, the site is under Go Petition. So if you simply Googled "Go petition Forest Biotechnology," you will get right there. And um, or if you or if you Google Strauss petition OSU, you'll get to the background site where we have links back to the petition site. So that's the way to do it. Uh, any of those will work. You know, I just I just looked today. The petition's only been live for a few days. We have uh, 430 signatures already. So. Uh, that's really inspiring to me. We have a lot of traction already, and hopefully we'll have a lot more than that before this is done over the, over the next couple of months.
3: And, and, but, you know, the average listener to this podcast might be a science enthusiast or someone who um, is interested in biotechnology, but why should they care about forests? Like, what, why does it matter to the urban dweller if uh, you can use biotechnology in a forest or not?
1: You know, uh, I'll go back to the East Coast again. You know, there's a chestnut street in almost every town, but chestnuts are, are gone from wild forests back there. So, people with any knowledge of forests and natural environment will realize that if you're in the uh, about half of the East Coast that's affected by ash dieback, you're probably seeing dead ashes in some of your favorite uh, places where you might uh, canoe or kayak in, in, in your local communities. It's very dramatic. These trees die very, very quickly from these borers. And so far, there's basically no workable solutions to it. And that's something that I'm confident if we did the research, we could develop a biotech solution. It may not be the best solution. i also encourage other types of activity, and some of that's ongoing, like biocontrol organisms. But but those kinds of things may get the public to really see that we have a problem with our forests, that trees do not have the The resilience, the genetic resistance to, to, to withstand a lot of the stresses we're happening, where that, that, that they're seeing. We already talked about the West Coast with the droughts and the increasing temperatures, lower rainfall causing stress on a lot of trees. So I, I think the public is seeing it more and more. It's more in their bailiwick. And and I know out West, the uh, forests, the dying trees and the forest fires are one big reason for that. So my hope is that the public will, sort of be outraged and say, why wouldn't we be using our best biotech to our most advanced, our most science-based techniques, our most precise techniques, which advanced biotech is compared to conventional breeding, to deal with this? Uh, Why aren't we doing that? Why do we have these artificial roadblocks to science? It's outrageous. And that's really, uh, that's my feeling. And I'm hoping that there's enough of the public and other scientists to just say, you know, uh, Advanced biotech might not always be the best solution, but we need the science to decide and and, and be outraged and, and stand up and sign, sign the petition.
3: Yeah. And I would encourage people to think about what they would write along that line, because there is a box where you can include your thoughts. And I think that has some gravity and helps other people understand the petition as they read through it. And there'll be a copy to the petition as well as to more information on the talking biotech website that accompanies this particular episode. So if everything goes extremely well and you, you know, if you could change this, you know, wave the magic wand, what would you like to see as a potential regulatory system that may circumvent these particular barriers?
1: Yeah, you know, the basis of the regulatory systems around the world, uh, they assume because you use advanced biotech, it's inherently dangerous and should not be out in the environment to any extent whatsoever, even in tiny field trials that have, you know, could be isolated or essentially contained. Um, whereas with all conventional breeding, even when you move species around the world and make hybrids and clones that have never existed in nature, we, the regulatory system assumes they're fine. That's not always the case. So given the urgency for research to proceed, given the stresses we've talked about in forests, we need a regulatory system that gets away from the myth that just because you use these methods, it's dangerous. We need one that's much more based on the potential benefits. In this case, having healthy, uh, pest-resistant, productive trees and the real potential harm uh, which is very, very low. We know through decades of research. Now the biotech method is not any more dangerous than uh, than conventional methods. So we need really a revolution in the regulatory system. We need a revolution in the certification systems that take this stigma and this legal barrier off of advanced biotech. It's kind of like uh, you think about running a race. Well, there's there's adv- this, this advanced biotech and trees as other methods that generally are not regulated, uh, in this extreme way. It's like, it's like a, a runner carrying a giant piano on their back and saying, okay, guys, race to the finish line, who's going to win. And it's so hard to have uh, biotech come through, uh, because of this tremendous social barrier, this burden on it. So let's come up with a regulatory system that's more about the benefit and the real risk of the genes that are in there compared to what happens if you don't put them in there, which is often no trees at all, or a very, very sick forest, one that really looks at that and doesn't just assume all these things are dangerous based on the method, which is, which is completely wrong. We, we now know.
3: Yeah. It's, it's an amazing issue that we still do make those decisions based on genetics rather than on the trait itself or the organism itself and, or the method by which those genetics were derived. And it's, it's really, it really is something curious to me, especially because if, if, you know, your your crystal ball is as good as mine. If we look 20 years, 50 years, 100 years in the future, this kind of genetic tweaking will be commonplace and it'll be accepted and it'll be solving problems. So why are we hindering its application up front? And do you have any like kind of final messages here that may be motivational to get somebody to actually not just sign the petition, but also use their networks. Um, you know, talking to their employees or coworkers or family or their social media networks. How do you really motivate somebody to take this action and help drive the success of this effort?
1: Well, that's a tough. If I if I if I knew, knew the answer to that really well, Kevin, I'd probably have a lot uh, a lot better job than I have now. Although I'm very happy with my job as a professor. You know, I just think. Uh, There's so much noise out there. Uh, Unfortunately, some of that noise comes from some of the organizations that we'd like to trust. So you really have to get back to science and facts. You've got to cut through all the blather out there about, you know, what's sustainable and what's good and what's the best technique. Because usually we don't know until we do research. We need real research. We need to invest in real research. We need to make it so we can do it. In the field, so we take these great new ideas and we have these amazing technologies like CRISPR that are, you know, allow us to tweak natural DNA that's already there, but with a precision that breeding can't get anywhere near. So we have these very powerful techniques for tweaking the DNA that's there. And I know this is going very nerdy, but because it's more precise and tweaking native genes, we should and and can also solve these big problems. We should be, you know, really screaming about how we need to accelerate studies to develop solutions, not worrying about could something possibly go wrong? Should we not regulate it to death because of the method? We have to change our entire mode of thinking to emphasize science, emphasize development, emphasize the urgency we're facing. The world is in, uh, in deep trouble with respect to climate change and movement of pests around the world. We don't have the luxury. We just don't to be so precautionary. Maybe 30 years ago, we could have, but now we can't. We need to move these incredible technologies forward. And that means taking these barriers to research away.
3: So thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Steve Strauss from Oregon State University, one of my favorite scientists. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing the opportunity to participate in this change.
1: Thanks for the chance to be on the podcast, Kevin. Thank you very much.
3: Yeah, very good. And, and if anybody, um, after you sign the petition, write a review on iTunes, talk more about this podcast to your friends. Uh, we're seeing a nice little uptick once again in the numbers and the downloads. And I think it just means that people are getting excited about the application of technologies to solve problems for people and the planet. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech.